A good Thursday morning to you on this June 10th. In just a second, uh, we'll get into uh, subject matter. Of course, we're going we're gonna to span a, a couple of different stories. We'll touch on some international stories today. We'll talk about politics at home. This show presented by the team at Bitcoin. Well, as it is each and every day, our title sponsor since episode one adam o'brien the founder and ceo of bitcoin wells is going to be joining me today on the show coming up in uh, 90 minutes or so opic roy will join him as well from forbes we're going to take a look at what's been going on in el salvador if you've been paying attention to international news and especially on the currency front el salvador i mean the country's made bitcoin an official currency It's a big story. We're going to get into what it means. That's coming up in about an hour and a half from now. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Give you a sense of what's coming up on the show today. We'll we'll talk to uh, a health researcher, an expert, Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle coming up in about 30 minutes. We're we're going to continue our coverage of uh, some of the the uh, the stories that are not just coming out of Kamloops at this former Indian residential school, the discovery of these 215 bodies, but it's got people across this country talking about a myriad of different things, which is good. Shining a light. These are difficult and uncomfortable conversations. If you know, I mean, Angela White joining us uh, this week here on the show, if you caught that interview, I probably don't have to tell you how powerful it was. If you didn't catch it, you need to make time for it. Trust me, it's a, it's a, one of those must listens from the Indian Residential School Survivor Society. She joined us from the West Coast, and part of what she talked about really disturbing. This is back on June eighth. If you're if you're looking for the show, you can find it on our podcast archive, or of course on our YouTube channel. Talking about dentists that would attend these residential schools and be paid per tooth for dental work for extractions they did. And Angela said that's why you'll see so many residential school survivors these days with full dentures, because in many circumstances, they were left, you know, without teeth. I mean, she said it was absolutely appalling. My stomach just twisted when I heard that. I know that that was the case with many of you as well, because you wrote into the show. You told us that. Before that, remember, we had Dr. Bukla Salami that was on the show uh, from the U of A's Faculty of Nursing. This was a while ago. I think it was like May 5th or something like that. First week of May. She came on. She talked about systemic racism in healthcare, specifically identifying marginalized communities, BIPOC communities, including indigenous communities. So we're going to get into conversation about indigenous health care. That's coming up around nine o'clock. And then, as mentioned, 10 o'clock international currency. Right now, we continue our conversation on violence in the Middle East, on Israel, on Palestine, on the, the viability of a two-state solution, on the, the political career of, of PM Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu. There are a lot of factors at play here, and we've been talking to a lot of different voices. It's my pleasure to welcome to the program this morning Adir Kraftman from the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs and my friend Stacy Levitt-Wright from the Jewish Federation of Edmonton. Welcome to the program. Stacy. welcome back. It's good to have you both here this morning. Thank you so much for inviting us back, inviting me back. You bet. We're looking forward to a candid conversation here. Obviously, these these can prove to be, Stacy. as you know, these can prove to be polarizing conversations. We've been talking to people who have very passionate perspectives from a number of different angles here. 
And some folks have taken issue with some of the conversations on this show, which is entirely their right to do. I've been eager to get you back on here. I'm looking forward to talking to you. I want to ask you very plainly, when it comes to dialogue around this conflict in the Middle East, I know you've taken issue with some of, for example, what you've heard on this show. Let's get into it. Let's talk about it. What's bothered you in particular, what you've heard right here on Real Talk? What's bothered me is, <clears throat> excuse me, the language that's being used that is at times inflammatory, uh, is incendiary, and does not speak to the nuances of the geopolitical situation and has not allowed for uh, facts on the ground and historical accuracies that we know of. So what in particular, like, like let's really get into it. I know, I, I know this is an audience that's willing to listen. This is an audience that's eager to learn. You've got a host that's here. I'm here for this. So let's get into it. Let's talk specifically. Um, Specifically, I think there has been uh, a lack of understanding of the Jewish people as as an ethno-cultural people, that we're not just a religious group, that we have a language and identity and deep ties to Israel. The words of colonialism and apartheid are being thrown around uh, loosely on social media, and that is having a deep impact on the youth in our community. Uh, I'll leave it there. Adir, do you do you see this? I mean, is this is has this been? Would you say a common sentiment across the country that that people are, are feeling unfairly characterized or, or inaccurately or, or even irresponsibly characterized? Yeah, absolutely. And, and first, thanks for, for having me on the show. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really glad to, to join this conversation. I think when we look at different issues happening, not just in Canada, but in North America, we often put things through the prism of oppression or through the prism of whiteness and colonialism um, when there is sort of a, a strong group and a, and a weaker group. And what we fail to see that what's happening in, in the Middle East, not just uh, between Israelis and Palestinians, but many other ethnic conflicts in the region, is that there are there are multiple nations and multiple um, national groups who are who are in a conflict over a, a piece of territory. And so by describing the conflict, falsely describing the conflict as sort of a settler colonial uh, uh, initiative or an ethnic cleansing sort of ra- racist uh, racist um, endeavor, what, what uh, folks are essentially doing is Jewish erasure, because what they're saying is that Jews are European and they're white, they have no connection to the Middle East whatsoever, and nothing could be further from the truth. Jews, uh, as you know, as, as uh, we saw in the previous centuries, were never accepted as Europeans, uh, when even the most assimilated ones, the ones who, who showed you know, no uh, religious observance uh, were targeted. Uh, and what we have to, I think, get back to is that if we're going to have a productive conversation uh, on the Middle East, we first need to acknowledge that uh, the Jews have a, a deep connection to the land of Israel, uh, as do the Palestinians. And the only way forward is a way to, to establish two states for two peoples so that everyone can live in peace, security and dignity. And and this is this is where the conversation needs to be, isn't it? Which is is how you find the solution. Is a solution possible? I, I'm never really a fan of conversations that that would simply decree that a solution is not possible. And I and I, and I have yet to meet somebody that said that they're just going to throw their hands in the air and walk away because they don't see it happening. We've had different Absolutely. opinions, and, and 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 ask you to take this over. We've had different opinions from people though on whether or not a two state solution is viable, uh, including a rabbi that joined us yesterday. Do you think that it is? 
I absolutely think that it's it's viable, and we've seen it in history, right? So, so uh, you know, folks will say the uh, expansion of settlement activity in the West Bank precludes a uh, two-state solution. There are too many uh, Jewish communities in the West Bank, and so on. Um, but if you look back in history, the government of Israel has shown a willingness whenever it deems that there's a partner for peace to make painful compromises, uh, including um, uh, removing Jewish communities uh, um, into different territories. So. Uh, there were Jews that lived in the Sinai when Israel controlled the Sinai after its war with Egypt in 1967. And during the peace uh, agreements with uh, with Egypt, those communities uh, were uprooted and, and moved uh, deeper into Israel. Uh, in 2005, uh, again, uh, Jewish communities were removed in order to make way for Palestinian autonomy. Sadly, uh, rather than taking this opportunity to establish some form of a healthy autonomy, uh, uh, the Palestinians' uh, leadership uh, chose Hamas to, uh, uh, to to lead them in the, in the Gaza Strip, and uh, and we, we obviously see the, the consequences. It's they're recognized by Canada as a as a terrorist organization, and um, for the last 15 years has been holding Gazans hostage as it fires rockets on Israel. Israel has shown a willingness to make these kind of sacrifices for peace. What we haven't seen, though, is a willingness from the Palestinian side to accept history, to understand that, you know, there was a war in 1948, the Israelis call it the War of Independence, the Palestinians call it the catastrophe or the Nakba, and there hasn't yet been an acceptance that Israel is permanent, it's here to stay, Jews are a people that have a deep connection with the state of Israel and, and with the land of Israel, and uh, and have agreed to any form of agreement. The, the Palestinians rejected a uh, partition plan uh, in, in 1947. Uh, in 2000, there were, there were many, uh, 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 summits uh, with different proposals uh, led by, at the time, Prime Minister Ehud Barak. Even as recently as 2007, Prime Minister at the time, Ehud Olmert, I think offered 100% of uh, the Gaza Strip and I think it was 98% of the West Bank, including some additional land transfers to account for the large settlement blocks that would sort of stay uh, under Israeli control. And, uh, and, and East Jerusalem, which is something that you know many Israelis uh, would find uh, to be deeply problematic, um, but to make peace, he, he made this offer, and the Palestinians once again rejected it without counteroffer. So the question I, I would have is, how is it possible? How how do we move forward when there is uh, there is a there is a reluctance to to make peace? Like what 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 is Israel supposed to do when the Palestinian leadership year after year refuses to come to the negotiation table and make peace? This is, I mean, the word acceptance is a huge word, though, isn't it? Like like refusing to accept kind of the way things are. I mean, there, there's examples all around the world of people groups refusing to accept their current circumstance. And, and it's an interesting one here, Stacey, isn't it? Because, I mean, quite frankly, you know, we had a we had an audience member yesterday uh, commenting during during our interview with with the rabbi saying, hey, listen, you know, I acknowledge this is a Palestinian Canadian making the comment. She said, I acknowledge the need for a safe state. I'm paraphrasing for a, for a safe state for Israel said history has proven that it's necessary. But why does it need to come at the expense of Palestinians? And herein lies the question, right? To whom is the land entitled? To whom is the real estate, so to speak, entitled? I mean, this is this is the whole premise. This is, in my mind, in my shallow level of understanding, this is part of the reason why there there's so much at play here. Uh, this is this is not a small thing. This is people's connection to the land, and two different people group feel, groups feeling very strongly about it, right? 
very deeply connected and, and two groups feeling indigenous to the land as well. So what do you say to people that call it? I mean, you know, people I mean, we talk about super loaded words and I know that you've never shied away from a good conversation, Stacey. You know, people talk about apartheid. People say this is the very definition of apartheid. There's two series of laws. There, there's limited or restricted movement there. You know, people are saying, like, that's what apartheid looks like. What would your what would your counter argument be? I would say that an apartheid state would not have democratic elections, would not have three parties coming together in a government that's going to be sworn in shortly, one party being on the right, one party uh, being more left. In fact, the leader of the party being somebody who is uh, openly gay and an Arab-Israeli party as well. That doesn't sound like an apartheid state to me. I've got... uh an interesting i've just received this in this email we've just received it uh, so i'm just reading it right now this is from shane i appreciate it. i want to ask uh, both of you to respond to this um adir maybe we'll go to you first shane says it is anti-semitic to conflate all jews with the zionist politics project that is the state of israel he says as an anti-zionist jew in the diaspora Israel and the Zionist leadership does not represent me nor many of my peers. Shane says, end the occupation, equal rights for all, one democratic state. Adir, what would you say to Shane? That's a lots to, lots to unpack here. I think before we can jump into it, we have to define what Zionism is. Zionism, and for the vast majority of Jews around the world, surveys show this, you know, in Canada and in Veronics, recently, a recent study showed that this is true. Zionism, as we see it, is the national liberation movement of the Jewish people. It is the belief that Jews are a people and Jews have a right to self-determination in their indigenous homeland, which is the, the land of Israel. And I recognize that there are uh, uh, some Jews who are anti-Zionist, who are non-Zionist, who don't believe that is the case. Uh, uh, and respectfully, that is a, a fringe minority uh, a position that doesn't represent the majority of, of Jews. And I also want to say that it comes a lot from a position of privilege Living in the, uh, you know, in North America, especially in the United States or, or in Canada, where, uh, you know, you can live outside of Israel in, in safety and security and dignity. And, and, you know, Canada is one of the best places to, to live, not just as a Jew, but as a minority. But the majority of, uh, of Jews in Israel are actually not from Europe or North America. My family, for example, comes from Libya. They were expelled from Libya. I have relatives who were expelled from Iraq. They were not allowed to take any of their belongings. They were not allowed to take any of their, uh, um, you know, any money uh, to Israel when they were expelled. And the, the majority of, uh, of Jews in, uh, uh, in Israel are from countries like Morocco or Tunisia or Syria and, and other places. So to turn this into some sort of thought experiment of, well, you know, there are 10 million people that live in Israel. Let's just dismantle the state and, uh, and cancel their identity. Uh, it's not just, um, you know, not representative of the vast majority of Jews around the world. It's it's dangerous. Stacy, do you want to add to it? I would add that the consistent surveys of Israelis and Palestinians demonstrate that one state is not what people want. And it's far for us to say what the people of Israel uh, should be doing and what they want. They have a right to self-determination, as do the Palestinians want self-determination. And the best way that's going to be achieved is with a two-state solution. It's really interesting to read <clears throat> from this email from Shane. I'm grateful that he wrote in when, when he says, you know, as he, what he characterizes as Zionist leadership does not represent me. We've received so many different 
messages that I'm grateful for from many different perspectives. And there's a common theme talking about different people and different leadership. But there's a theme of people saying this does not represent them. In other words, Hamas does not represent all Palestinians. The Israeli government does not represent all Jews. Benjamin Netanyahu does not represent all Israelis, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What do you make of that, Stacey? I mean, can you can you see that? I'll go to Stacey first. Can you see that from from those different angles? I mean, can you see how that might be accurate? Absolutely. And I would say that our our community is not a monolith and having open discussions around uh, the government politics and policies and perhaps who the leaders are, uh, that is not being anti-Semitic. There's an old joke, Ryan, that when uh, a Jewish person was stranded on an island, he uh, built two synagogues. And when he was found later and they said, well, why do you have two synagogues here? You're one person. And he said, well, there's the one that I go to and the one that I'll never step foot in. Right. So it, it, it's good to have a healthy debate within the community. But uh, I'll turn it over to Adir and see what he wants to add. Look, I think we can we can talk about it in, in any context. So, you know, with the discovery of, you know, the horrific discovery of uh, uh, the children's bodies in Camp Loops, does that represent all Canadians? Is that something that we should, you know, should Canadians abroad be targeted because of uh, because of the past, uh, you know, tragedies of uh, of Canada? Does the Canadian government represent absolutely every the view of every single uh, uh, Canadian? The answer is no. People are individuals. They're entitled to their opinions. Uh, and, you know, just like in Canada and just like in Israel, as two democracies, people often disagree and they disagree strongly with their uh, with their government, we've seen you know protests outside of uh, the prime minister in Israel's is home for for months now, right? So this idea of you know it, the state of Israel doesn't represent me, and this it's the same as saying well the government of Canada doesn't fully encompass all of my views. Of course it doesn't. It's it's natural, but that is different than saying you know I don't uh, I don't identify as a as part of the majority Jewish community that sees Israel as an essential part and a core component of of its Jewish identity, right? So in response to Shane's email, you know, if he's entitled to, to his opinion, but I think to claim that there is no such connection, you know, to, he, he's entitled to say, I do not feel a connection with Israel, which is totally legitimate. But what he can't say is that the, the Jewish people at large don't have a connection with the people, with the land of Israel, because that's just simply false. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, <clears throat> I'm trying to, I appreciate your, you know, you invoking that, that tragedy out of Kamloops. Um, I mean, part of Canada's tragic history. Um, what I'm not sure about where I'm not sure if it stands up and, and I'm eager for your response to this to hear it is 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 that Canadians now like it or not are being forced to grapple with descriptions of what that is. And and a big one is cultural genocide. And people are really wrestling with the big word colonialism as well. And, and I think Canadians and indigenous people who would not identify as Canadians are both really right now grappling with that and having these conversations. And, and I don't necessarily have a strong point to make. I'm not trying to draw direct lines. But, but Stacey, I know you and I have been corresponding off the air. And I don't blame people for writing in. Like I said, I've received many emails about this because we have an engaged audience and people care and people feel very strongly, of course, about their perspectives, about their ethnicity, about their religion, about their origins, their family histories. I mean, of course, people feel strongly about that. But I think sometimes, you know, some of these words, you know, a deer, especially when it comes to Kamloops, 
And maybe we can draw a line to the conversation that we're having now. Some of the words are make us very uncomfortable and, and cause us to push back in a sense. But sometimes we have to look and say, well, if it's not this, then what is it? I think that's also proof of what happens when you do oversimplify the conversation and, and the impact of that on uh, the conversations that we're having in our offices, in our homes, uh, among our youth, that if they don't have the language and the tools to really uh, grapple with and a deeper understanding of the history and, and the context, um, then those conversations don't lead to good places. And Stacy, let's talk about that because there's a I mean, sometimes things just need to be plainly stated, you know, and 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 in circumstances like this, I got a message from someone uh, extremely concerned that said, you know, following conversations that we I mean, they're not blaming the show, but they're saying following some conversations that we had on the show with a couple of Palestinian Canadians who are making strong points from their perspective. They're saying, you know, a couple of days later in the West End of Edmonton, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a prominent Jewish neighborhood, as, as this person described it, they said there was a car driving around asking where the Jews lived, like seeking to intimidate, you know, using anti-Semitic language, etc. An anecdotal report, I have no reason to believe it wasn't true. I believe that the Edmonton police issued a statement that it was something that they were concerned about. It goes without saying that that is entirely and completely unacceptable, We've heard people talking about whether or not criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. We had this conversation yesterday, and it was a very good conversation. What have you noticed, Stacey, trends-wise? I mean, what are you hearing from community members on this front when it comes to acts of or sentiments of anti-Semitism, community members being targeted as a result of this, you know, if I can call it an international story? I'll begin with stating that uh, that incident occurred in uh, my neighborhood, block away from where I live. Mm. So the impact of that is that my children are afraid to go walk the dog around the block now because they know that this car has gone on in the neighborhood. It was not just one incident. There was a series of six incidents. I know three were reported to the police. I know three uh, that were unreported, but brought to our attention. And so the impact of that is uh, some fear and people wondering, should they keep their mezuzahs on their doors? Should they be wearing their McIndavids in public? Uh, kids going to the local Tama Torah school, the parents are, are concerned about their safety and their security. So it does have a deep impact. And I think it is directly related to some of the rhetoric that we're seeing on uh, social media. And there's local sites that the children and teens follow like Yedwave, where there's violent anti-Semitism. Um, I've heard of an unreported uh, incident that happened at the Kingsway Mall the other day, where a teenager who was wearing a mug and David and incidentally family uh, hails from uh, Arab land, so he understands and uh, the Arab conversation that are going on around him. Uh, there's a group of youth that uh, said, oh, look at that Jew, and then attacked him and threw him down to the ground. So there are impacts, uh, definitely, that we're experiencing in our community. And then our, our teens, as particularly, and our young adults who are just entering the workplace, Israel has become a dirty word. Uh, they are being vilified if they have names that are obviously Jewish, and people know that they identify with the country, the state of Israel. And uh, many are seeing uh, anti-Semitic cartoons, uh, things with Hitler and Nazi uh, imagery in the cartoons circulating among the high school groups uh, and on some of these sites. And so uh, it really impacts them on a day-to-day basis when they're then going to the classroom with these uh, people who they know have been circulating these things. Adir, do you sense, I mean, let me ask you on two fronts, uh, are, are you sensing 
uh, anecdotally or otherwise, uh, an increase in anti-Semitism in Canada. And let me ask you at the same time, well, gosh, I should be careful here. I'm not I'm not saying one is the other. I'm not saying one equals the other. But let me say as an anecdotal observation myself, like I've noticed here's, you know, when when the NDP had its federal convention and members started talking about, you know, a resolution on Palestine, you know, my my very first inclination was like, hmm, like politically, that's pretty gutsy. Right. Because it wouldn't be the type of thing that typically you would see a federal party seeking to achieve government. This is no offense to my Palestinian friends. I'm just saying it's an extremely hot button issue that most federal political parties would not take a strong position on. And if they did take a strong position in the Western world, it wouldn't be a pro-Palestine position. That's just a fact. What I see now is a lot of people again anecdotal it's people on their social media bios it's it, it's you know sort of the public expressions a lot of people with that flag a lot of people with the free palestine hashtag etc are you seeing it are, are you seeing an increase i mean are you seeing a change in different sentiments related to this international relationship i think we have to be really careful about distinguishing between the legitimate debate that needs to be had about the israeli-palestinian conflict you know, um, the rights of Palestinians, the struggle for a state, um, possible solutions between Israel and the Palestinians and so on, and what's happening in here. There's there's never a justification for uh, any form of hate targeting anybody because of an aspect of, of their identity. So you asked about, you know, am I sensing or as anecdotal? It's, it's not anecdotal. We have Statistics Canada that shows that Jews are among the frequently most, most, the most frequently targeted group when it comes to hate crime year after year after year, and it's completely disproportionate, right? Jews are a fraction of a percent uh, in Canada and are, and are disproportionately targeted. Um, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto here in, in Toronto um, reported a five-fold increase of anti-Semitic incidents in May as a result of um, what was going on and the rhetoric uh, that has sort of escalated over here because of what was happening there. And one other thing about anti-Semitism that I think is important to, to mention is that in, in Canada, um, we would use the uh, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance or IRA definition of anti-Semitism. And it's a, it's a, a definition that was put together by um, um, multiple countries that came together and, and with, with experts on hate, anti-Semitism, Holocaust denial, including Canada. And it includes examples like targeting uh, uh, Jews or vilifying Jews in their countries because of the actions of the state of Israel, which is anti-Semitic. Uh, denying uh, the, the Holocaust, for example, is anti-Semitic. Denying pe- Jewish peoplehood, right, uh, is, uh, or, or the right to self-determination uh, is anti-Semitic. But it also says, and it's important to reiterate, that criticism of the state of Israel in the same way that's leveled against any other country cannot be anti-Semitic. It is an important part of our uh, a political discourse it's an important part of the of the conversations that that we're having, and if you look at if you if you look at conflicts in, in other countries, nobody is saying you know nobody is arguing that we should cancel uh, any eth- other ethnic community because of the politics or even wrongdoings of the of the the state governments of their home countries. You know there are, there are lots of things going. For example, oh God, in in China or, or the Philippines, nobody is is canceling the Lantern Festival. Nobody says we should boycott the taste of Manila. Why is it that Jews, for whom Israel is a, is a cultural hub, why are they vilified? And, you know, as, as Stacy said, why is Israel a, a dirty word for kids who probably know very little about the, the politics or the intricacies of, uh, of the history, but they know Israel as their 
cultural hub, as a, as a part of their identity. They want to celebrate, you know, Jewish culture that originates in Israel, right? Jew is technically somebody from Judea, which is the region around Israel, around Jerusalem. I'm grateful for your perspectives here. Um, I know that both of you have to go. We have an interview coming up at nine o'clock, but I want to leave an opportunity. Oftentimes, some of the most important things we'll talk about in an interview come following the question, is there anything we've missed? Is there anything that we've not touched on that you want to make sure that you enter into debate? People that are going to hear this podcast later today, people that are taking this in live right now. Stacy, you first. What's something that you want people to walk away from and be thinking about in this context? I think uh, I'd like to see people uh, look to educate themselves more to understand the language that they're using, the impact of it, that we as Albertans and as Canadians, we are all you know, human beings and we should be looking to call for unity rather than language that's divisive and incendiary. Adir? Yeah, I think, you know, to, to build on what Stacy said, Many communities are, are here because they wanted to escape the conflict and the physical conflict that's going on uh, you know, in, in their countries of origin. Here we have an opportunity to sit down, engage in respectful dialogue, acknowledge the, uh, you know, all of the positions, all of the strong feelings without uh, vilifying, targeting, or spreading hate against any particular group. Uh, and it's really up to all of us as Canadians to, to do that in a respectful way. Couldn't agree more with uh, the both of you on those points. And I appreciate your perspectives this morning. Stacey Levitt-Wright uh, with the Jewish Federation of Edmonton. Adir Kraftman with the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Thank you for your time. Thanks for being here. Thanks Thank for having you. us. You can be in touch with the show anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. You can let me know what you think about what you've just heard. Obviously, it's another perspective. We'll continue to bring you different perspectives relating to this. I recognize, I see on our live chat, not everybody agrees with what they're hearing here which is good. It's healthy to disagree and to talk it out. It's what our guests have just said. There's a lot of talk about occupation. There's a lot of talk about rights to the land. I mean, some folks stating the obvious, but but it needs to be stated, you know, echoing what we, we just heard there from, you know, from Stacy and Adir, you know, essentially, you, you know, important uh, debate, conversation uncomfortable conversation needs to happen but targeted acts of violence or hatred can never be accepted and of course that's an important point to make you know targeting groups you know you feel like do i even need to say this and then we look at the tragedy in london ontario this week and it's like maybe as a as a country maybe as a as citizens we do need to continually remind ourselves that groups based on ethnicity or religion still are targeted uh, on a daily basis, uh, whether or not that results in acts of cold-blooded murder like we saw in London, Ontario, maybe not every time, but that doesn't mean that people are always feeling safe. It doesn't mean that people are always feeling respected and valued. And certainly this conversation has implications in communities around the world from both the Palestinian perspective, from the Jewish perspective or the Israeli perspective, if you will, and those aren't always the same. Important to point out. And uh, we don't know it all. And so we appreciate these types of conversations. We appreciate people that will make themselves available to come on the show. Respond to some of the things that they take issue with. And put important things in front of you and in front of me for our consideration. These conversations happen because we have partners that back us 
each and every show like the builders at eden landscaping this is the time of year where they're finally outside all the crews are going rain or shine day in day out building dreams into reality you've been staring out at your front or your backyard all winter into the spring just going is this the year we're going to finally make that change you know your realtor keeps talking to you about curb appeal but you're not really in the mood to do all the work yourself give Eden landscaping a call you can find all their details at landscapeedmonton.ca more than 20 years experience 20 years turning dreams into reality at eden landscaping also big shout to the teams of the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park they've got you all set for father's day that's right these six dairy queens as long as you mention real talk or drop my name jespo they're going to give you a father's day cake this is the famous dairy queen father's day cake it's the one the dad wants for five dollars off all you have to do is mention real talk or jespo at palisades nemeo newcastle westmount y gardens or baseline road five bucks up father's day cakes they're also collecting donations for the stollery children's hospital foundation they wanted me to mention that to you and speaking of father's day the team at friesen brothers is getting set to roll out their father's day boxes this is the solution for the Father's Day weekend, if you feel like doing less work, spending more time with dad, they've got their world famous sourdough cinnamon buns. They've got the sausage coils. They've got this great chicken and cheese dip. Fabulous produce. Beautiful Alberta beef to hit the grill. It's the Father's Day box at the Fort Saskatchewan, Edmonton, and Stony Plain locations. Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years. Alberta grown and Alberta owned. In just a second, we're going to talk about uh, health care and we're going to talk about communities in Canada, more specifically, people that have been denied equitable access to health care. It's a theme that keeps popping up in conversations that we're having here on the show. And we'll be checking in with Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle in just a moment. Also wanted to touch on some news that people are certainly buzzing about here in our neck of the woods in the province of Alberta right now confirmed yesterday. I hate to be the bearer of this news if you're just hearing it for the first time but trans canada tc energy and the alberta government announcing yesterday the death they stuck a fork in the keystone xl pipeline i mean essentially you know we can be guilty of oversimplifying issues here on a talk show like this uh, and we and we endeavor to do the opposite but basically this came down to who was going to be sitting in the oval office i mean that's basically what this came down to right now president donald trump may not have been able to do anything about the court challenges around kxl and and we can get into the weeds on that but at least there was an advocate for the pipeline project at least there was an american president cheering for it that's what would have sold the alberta government on making a billion and a half dollar investment in that pipeline as that pipeline was wavering in the wind, as there was uncertainty swirling about, the premier of Alberta told Albertans that the investment was necessary to keep the pipeline going through that period of uncertainty. A bunch of loan guarantees as well as part of that commitment from the government. Of course, on the flip side was President Joe Biden, who, as you know, won the election. 46 in the Oval Office now. And one of the very first things he did literally was to kill that pipeline was to essentially pull a presidential permit, if you will. Not entirely accurate, but he signed off on the death of the pipeline. And, and that's been the case ever since. You remember Jason Kenney had strong words for the White House on the day of Joe Biden's inauguration. I think the majority of people just 
looked at it and said, hey, you bet on a Trump win and you lost. Well, it was made official yesterday. The price tag, $1.3 billion. I saw somebody tweet today, and I've not fact-checked it for accuracy, but they had a blue check mark, so it must be true. Said, you know, if you took $10,000 a day and squirreled it away every day since the Hudson's Bay Company started doing business in Canada, you still would not reach the total that the Alberta government just spent on Keystone XL. That, to me, was pretty big. That was one you can try to wrap your mind around. Sarah Hoyles is looking at me like, are we really going to be doing that math? Are we really going to be doing that Please math? don't do math right don't now. Don't do that math right now. But I, I think, you know, regardless of, you know, with the blue check mark and, you know, if we're doing that math correctly, if we look at $1.3 billion, I think a lot of folks are saying, you know, what could that have done as far as uh, addressing houselessness? Mm. What would that $1.3 million have done for health care sure. or teachers or education? So, I mean, a lot. Yeah. I don't have to do, I don't have to get out a calculator to know that 1.3 billion would have done a heck of a lot. And, and the premier would probably argue back or the premier staff would probably argue back that, hey, listen, nobody else was there to step up for this pipeline. And had we not stepped up for the pipeline, then it would have been killed even earlier and those jobs wouldn't have been there. And then most people would have said, listen to this government advocating for government to prop up businesses that aren't viable. Hmm. It just doesn't really make sense to have the government in the mix the whole time. Isn't it weird to have a government take big pot shots at another government, like the federal government, for buying a pipeline, right? The Trans Mountain, the expansion. Canadians own it now, for now anyway. Canadians own it. So very critical of the federal government for buying that pipeline, yet investing in a pipeline with, with obviously fewer reasons for optimism. And now that pipeline's dead. So is it easy to look back and, 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 and to point fingers and say this was a dumb investment? Maybe. I mean, I would point to the fact that a lot of people are on the record having called this a stupid idea from the very beginning. This was a premier, I think, sending a message to his base that at the expense of Alberta's bottom line, he was willing to do absolutely whatever he possibly could to try to save that project. It's not a government that's established itself with, with that has that has established a track record of being able to say we are the fiscally prudent. We are the fiscally responsible conservatives. There's not evidence of that anywhere. And this would be one of those examples. This meantime, as a an independent conservative media outlet, Western Standard out of Southern Alberta, of course, everybody that pays attention to Western Canadian politics knows the name Derek Fildebrandt, a former MLA, formerly of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and a thorn in Jason Kenney's side. Uh, an exclusive story yesterday that the premier and his inner circle uh, had been attending private dinners at a secret restaurant. Now, this is fascinating. It's an ongoing trend of attacks from within. The calls are coming from within the house. Now, anybody would scoff, anybody close to senior United Conservative cabinet, let alone the premier's office, would say Derek Fildebrandt is not inside the house. Certainly not inside the house. But this is the drip, 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 drip technique that we've seen work so many times in politics before every few days there's another story and if you're the premier you got to be wondering what's coming out next you've got the sky palace supper photos 
And I'll maybe load up our live chat right now so I can look at it. I can't look at it all the time. It's too distracting for me. You guys are too smart. You're talking about too many things at too high of a level. I can't wrap my mind around it. I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. But I want to load it up here because I know that the live chat's going to remind me of things that I'm forgetting when it comes to this slow drip, right? But you've got these photos through, through a telephoto lens. I just like saying telephoto. It's just such a great word. The images yes. through, a, through a telephoto lens. I, it's, it, is a, uh, it, it is a wonderful moment in a young photographer's life when they get their first legit telephoto when lens. When you shoot for the first oh, time nice. and that image stabilizer starts working and you're holding this long lens. And anyway. Guys, 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 guys. Sorry. It's too, ba- it's too bad that camera shop's not still advertising with us or we could talk about where you could get them. And this but, is, but they're not. So they're not. So we won't. But if there are camera companies out there <laughs> that would like to partner with us, we've got a guest online right now. She's like, you guys going to talk to me or. So you've got the Sky Palace Supper photos through the telephoto lens. Let's rewind a little bit further. You've got the 16, 17 MLAs, including the speaker, Right that signed this letter essentially calling for the government to wrap up and, and, and get rid of its lockdown measures. You have dissension from within the ranks. You have Todd Lowen resign as caucus chair. You have Drew Barnes speak out and come on real talk. Then you've got both these guys booted from the party, right? You've got Angela Pitt speaking out. You have cabinet minister Leela Ahir calling on the premier to apologize for the Sky Palace supper. Jason Kenney then does apologize. Then you get this story in the Western Standard about the premier's dinners at this private restaurant, this private facility. You've got Brian Jean, former leader of Alberta's official opposition, former federal MP, former candidate for the leadership of this party. The alleged target of the alleged kamikaze campaign still being investigated by RCMP. Drip, 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 right? Marco's watching says the Canadian Taxpayer Federation, the Fraser Institute, silent right now on the billion and a half dollar pipeline boondoggle. You're not wrong. I do see the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is stepping up and applauding this government for its equalization referendum, which is absolutely ridiculous. And we're going to be talking about that. I'm so excited for next week's question of the week. That's all I'll say for now. This is one of those times where I'm really going to say I shouldn't get into it and I'm really not going to get into it. But next week's question of the week is going to raise a few eyebrows across the province. So this isn't Rachel Notley scoring points. I mean, Rachel Notley, I guess, is probably scoring some points, but they're not the ones throwing the hand grenades here. These are conservatives that drip, drip, drip strategy. Every single example I gave you. I mean, we don't know who submitted the photos of that Sky Palace supper. It's irresponsible for me to publicly say who, who is alleged to have potentially snapped those photos. But let me just say, I have said that person's name in the last three minutes. It is believed that the photos may have been supplied based on people going all CSI and figuring out where the sun was in the sky and the camera angles and what buildings would be around to provide those and who has offices in those buildings and who would have known that these things were going on. That's what's catching my attention on this. This isn't the opposition. The knives are out. And you got to wonder what's next. We'll continue to follow that story. Daniel says, I'm looking forward to next week. Me too, pal. Randy's wondering, has anybody told the war room yet? I'm sure. Alert the war room. 
Randy, I'm sure that they're combing Amazon Prime and Netflix right now to find an example of something they can attack to distract the Albertan people to take your attention off what's going on right now. Some random guy says, Corey Hogan of The Strategist, great podcast. We're going to have to get The Strategist back on this show. That Strategist roundtable they did with us, one of the greatest ones. Says he's got an evergreen piece of advice. Never interrupt your enemy when they're fumbling. If you're the official opposition right now, you're just sitting back and watching. Do not get in the way of whatever's happening with this government. We'll get to your emails a little later on in the show. We're 45 minutes away from talking about what's going on with Bitcoin. Big plunge with Bitcoin. Meantime, at the same time, El Salvador adds it as an official currency. We're going to talk to a Forbes contributor, plus Adam O'Brien from Bitcoin. Well, right now, it's my pleasure to return to a story that demands our attention. We've been talking about systemic racism in healthcare. We've been talking about indigenous people in Canada being denied equitable access to health care for well over 100 years. This is Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle's wheelhouse. The doctor is an indigenous health expert, a professor, associate director at the Wakabinus Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. Doctor, thank you so much for making time for us and welcome to the program. Thank you. Um, so glad to be here. And this is such an important topic, something that people aren't talking enough about right now. 100% agree with you, except for the fact that it keeps coming up in almost every conversation we've been having in particular. And I and I fear that this number, when I say it, when I say the 215, I mean it in reverence. When you say a number, I don't think I think in Canada, there's probably two you can say. I think you can say 99 and everybody thinks of Wayne Gretzky in a positive sense. I think if you say the 215, I think Canadians will find themselves at at a point of somber reflection. It has prompted this horrific discovery has prompted so many conversations. Are you seeing that from from your angle as well? Oh, definitely. Unfortunately, there's not enough of those conversations. And, you know, we have stacks of reports about healthcare, about the residential schools, and absolutely nothing was talked about, really. And so to have people interested, to have people wanting to go and uh, understand what the, the issues are is really, really important, especially when you're starting to look at um, Joyce Ashikwan, who uh, Facebook lived her own death in Quebec. And, you know, they had the Vensk uh, Commission in 2019, which was before her death, and nothing had been done about the recommendations they had there. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal People was put out in 1996. There was 440 recommendations. Nothing was done. We went through const- failed constitutional talks between 1984 and 2005. And when we finally get to an agreement, which was supposed to be the blueprint on Indigenous peoples in 2005, we changed governments and the Conservatives coming in said they weren't going to fund the blueprint. So we have tons of evidence as to why we need to talk about this and what it's doing or not doing. And we're just it just seems that it always gets put to the side because there's always something more urgent, whether it's the economy or, you know, there's COVID going on. Yeah. Well, while that's going on, we still have people who can't get to healthcare. Why is it doctor? I mean, is it, is it, is it as 
simple as saying racism? I mean, is, is that is it that simple? Yes, it is actually that simple. I mean, you think about the Indian Act, you think about how you're in Alberta, Treaty 6 is there, the medicine chest clause is part of Treaty 6. The idea that it was supposed to be set up so that we would have you know, some form of health care for Indigenous people, First Nations people. And then, you know, the governments continually say it's not their fiduciary responsibility to, um, you know, provide that health care and non-insured health benefits that went through the court systems back in the 1930s. And it was agreed that this is something that we need to be doing. And yet we still have the government fighting for $10,000 uh, braces for a young girl, they spent $100,000 in court fees. So you tell me, is that not racism? When we talk about health, I mean, we can talk about access to health care. We can talk about quality of health care. We, we can talk about the health care experience. Um, we can certainly talk about things like quality of water. We can talk about nutrition. How do you approach this conversation? Because if we simply say, I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, when we had confirmed you to come on the show, uh, somebody who, who feels very strongly and passionately about issues. She's a very engaged citizen. And I said that you were coming on and, and she said she's she's a, a, a dietitian. She's a nutritionist. And, and she's been heartbroken about what we're learning about the reality in these residential schools and many of these residential schools where uh, Basil Johnson had reported um, mm-hmm. The duration of the residential school from, from 1939 to 1950 that, quote, hunger was never absent. Right. That these That's kids were true. these students, they say, you know, were fed just enough to blunt the sharp edge of hunger, but never enough to dispel it. They talk about how the, the calories that these children would have received would have been far fewer than they would have needed for growing bodies. They talked about the poor quality of food. They talked about. These children being used almost in an experimental sense to compare the effects of different fortified foods. I mean, this is a conversation about healthcare, isn't it? Yeah. And you know what? When they would get sick, if they didn't die at the school, they would send them to Indian hospitals like Charles Cancel in Edmonton. And yeah. right. And that would be another place that they would die um, or they would send them there and they'd say, hey, we're going to look after you. And they would sterilize our girls so that they couldn't have any babies after they left the residential schools. That's racism. It's still happening today. I just heard recently from a Métis lawyer in BC that he has clients who social workers took a 10-year-old Indigenous girl to a doctor and got an IUD put in so that she wouldn't get pregnant while she was in the foster care system. So that's racism. We can't hide it. We, we do a wonderful job in Canada of pretending like it's not happening, but it's happening. When you talk about the foods in the residential schools, uh, there's lots of papers on this. Ian Mosby's like the forerunner in talking about this. And Frederick Tisdale, who's out of Sick Kids Hospital here in Toronto, was doing er- experiments on pablum and formula. So they were not feeding the infants. And we're, we're talking about like, Within our lifetimes, you and I, our lifetimes, we're not talking 150 years ago. We're talking, you know, between the 1940s and the 1990s that this stuff was actually happening. And so when you start talking about that, you've got to think, why is it Canadians don't know this stuff? We're, we're, I think, 
trying to scale up our knowledge and understanding quickly. Um, and I say that with almost with he- with hesitation or trepidation, maybe, um, because I acknowledge that storytellers and elders and survivors have been providing the information and making the information available in different contexts for quite some time. And for whatever reason, the story really has flown under Canadians radar. Everybody knew about residential schools in a way. Everybody knew that there was some it was some sort of a smear on on Canada's record. We knew that in a way because it would be used by people in sentences, people that would say, oh, Canada doesn't get a pass. You know, we had residential schools and and Japanese internment camps and, you know, there was, you know, discrimination against other and people would say, oh, yeah, I guess can't, you know, but we didn't really know, did we? And then somebody like Angela White comes on the show yesterday from the Indian Residential School Survivor Society, and she starts telling us about dentists that would be paid per tooth extraction. And she says, why do you think so many residential school survivors wear full dentures? And I'm sitting there. And to be honest with you, I barely heard anything she said for the next five minutes because I was trying to reconcile that, you know? Honestly, even now, so I've gone into some of the remote and fly-in communities and all over Canada, and do you know that Indian and Northern Affairs or what's now known as Indigenous Services will only pay for mercury fillings for, for people? Whereas we get those nice white veneer fillings that you can't see, they won't pay for those for Indigenous people. And on top of that, when a kid is like four and five years old, if they have one cavity, they put those mercury fillings from one side to the other. There is no teeth to be seen. It's just silver. And they're doing that because they say that, you know, the dentist only comes up once every six to six weeks to two months, right? Like, so you have to do something so that the cavities don't get so bad that they can't chew. And that's their, their answer to it. Never mind. We haven't even talked about suicide or depression or post traumatic stress disorder or intergenerational and intragenerational, because it's not just one generation to a next it's within a generation. So, you know, while I didn't go to residential schools, there was always that fear that I could be going to a residential school if they, you know, came after my, my mom. So it, there is that right, Angela, that. like you like you lived with that personally. That was something that you yeah. would see, you would see that around you or that was something that you perceived uh, or that was a very real possibility. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And I, I remember, um, you know, you'd have a fight with your parent and you knew that you couldn't. And, and, you know, kids always have fights with their parents, especially when they're growing up. And you would think, oh, my God, if this fight's really bad. Um, and something happens, they're going to phone child welfare and I'm never going to see my parent again. And that's that's a sad reality even today. Like Cindy Blackstock talks about this all the time. She She's taken the federal government to court. There's nine injunctions against the federal government to actually pay child welfare at the rates we pay it for non-Indigenous people. And yet they keep fighting us in court. They don't want to pay it. They're finding ways to fight Indigenous people. And then they come on air and you'll see Mark Miller or Carolyn Bennett saying, hey, look, we're doing all this wonderful stuff for for the water. When in fact, they give you the money. I've been to communities where they gave them the money. They start up the water treatment plant, but they don't give them the money to run it. 
to have training, ongoing training. They don't give them the money for new filters, which you need to keep those those uh, treatment plants going. They bring in people who will come and do the work for a short period of time or spend the money of the, the community. And then they want to put some of our communities in third-party management because they're saying, oh, you're mismanaging the funds. Another thing is we have something called the health transfer policy. Um, many communities have gotten to take over their health care I say this in quotes because, you know, when they signed it back in 1986 to 1989 or even into the 90s, they won't raise the amount that they're giving them. So whatever you were given back in, say, 86 is the same amount you're getting today, even if your community grew. um, They also tell you what you can actually offer. They don't just let you decide, hey, I want to do a diabetes program right now because that's rampant or we have a lot of young children and we need to do some, you know, perinatal uh, care for for moms and and young kids, they tell you what you need to do. So they'll tell you that you have to do the vaccine clinics and you have to do wound care. And that takes away from whatever the community actually needs. So, you know, even though they can come out and say, look, we're putting X amount of dollars to this, they're not telling you that they're treating us still under the British North America Act. They made us wards of the state and they're still treating us that way. Doesn't matter where you live. We're talking to Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle. If you're just tuning in, uh, streaming our audio live on the Mixler audio app. If you want to hear our interviews in past with Dr. Cindy Blackstock, that was on Monday. That'll be June 7th. Angela White from the Indian Residential School Survivor Society was on Tuesday. Uh, That would be the 8th of June. So, Angela, I mean, we're we're here, you know, when I say to you, oh, we're going to come in, we're going to talk about indigenous health. I mean, the, the, the reality is probably we, we need to book you for about four hours because, <laughs> I mean, we can talk about the past, we can talk about the present and we can talk about the future. One of the, one of the really interesting things, I mean, you invoke the the death of uh, of Joyce Eshaquan and, and what was really remarkable, I think, I mean, it's it's a it's a tragic and heartbreaking story. I think it was a wake up call for a lot of people. She she was able to and not because of a. Uh, some sort of a great grand cooked up plan, I think, to invoke social media to wake up a nation. I don't think that's what the case was. I mean, she, you know, initially, my understanding is that she was using Facebook live videos during hospital visits because she required translation. Like that was the beginning of it. Right. In, in a sense. Um, and, and please feel free to correct my details. But but because of that Facebook live and because of the digital record, then then people were able to see what proved really to be irrefutable evidence that she was treated very poorly in, in the hospital. And like you said, she ultimately died on, on September 28th of last year. Uh, Francois Legault, the premier of Quebec, condemned the medical staff's comments toward her and he did call them racist. However, the premier of Quebec denied systemic racism, having any involvement in her death. Canada's prime minister, Justin Trudeau, called it the worst form of racism. Uh, you mentioned uh, indigenous services minister Mark Miller. He did apologize to her family for the incident for whatever it's worth. I think perhaps that's a person's life. And she had seven kids. Like what What happened? You know, this is where that inter and intra trauma comes from, because now those kids are going to live with that knowing how their mother passed. Right. And then that brings you back to Brian Sinclair. And I just heard about another lady in Quebec where she went to the exact same hospital at Juliet and she was asked by one of the nurses, oh, do you mind if I call you Joyce? You know, that's racist. You know, that's a microaggression. That's not that's not you know, hiding it. And so we're seeing it come out more and more. Canadians actually have to stand up and say, okay, 
I want to self-reflect on my power, my privilege, my position in life. What can I do to, to change this? I know um, Dr. Carrington had talked about this, you know, when she was talking about Kamloops. And I, I just really think that there's an important issue here that we're not talking about, which is we pretend like everything's okay so we can keep status quo going. You were talking earlier about um, the pipelines and how they were keeping those going. That's ignoring Indigenous rights. And that's ignoring the fact that we only have one land, one climate. When that's over, it's over. And that's part of our health. And we're ignoring it like it's nobody's business. Oh, we can keep burning fossil fuels forever. Yeah, we may have them, but we know what's what it's doing to the environment, which is also doing something to everybody's health. Our air quality is horrible horrible. However, when COVID hit, go back and look at the air quality numbers. And I'll tell you for the month of March, 2020, they were the best they've been in the last 50 years because there was no planes in the air and we had almost no cars on the road. So that tells you a lot about burning fossil fuels. We have to think about what we're doing. Every little thing affects our health. It's interesting that every single comment or observation that you've made here would qualify as a comment on health. But you and I are all over the map, uh, which is kind of the point, right? It's kind of the point. It demonstrates, I think it proves that we need to have fulsome conversations here. Let me return, though, to the comments about uh, Quebec Premier Legault, because here's what I think. I take that as the premier. I mean, a premier or a prime minister invoking the word racism is important. However, yes. calling the comments or the actions of those healthcare professionals, those nurses in, or doctors, whatever you want to be in this circumstance, I'm talking about this experience described as racist. That allows it to be a one off in public perception, right? To invoke systemic racism all of a sudden makes this not a cluck, cluck, tisk, tisk, those healthcare workers in Quebec, those racist healthcare workers. It makes it or demands more of a conversation about our entire structure, about this entire country, right? And I wonder if that's maybe why Quebec's premier denied this being evidence of systemic racism. What do you think? Oh, I definitely think so. And to be honest with you, I know I have research that I have yet to uh, publish. It's not been made public, but I can tell you governments have used healthcare as another form of assimilation, just like residential schools. We haven't talked about it yet. It's not in the literature. You're not going to find it in a book or online yet. Um, And what I know for a fact is that premiers like, like Legault, like, Ford, um, you know, they they say things, they say they're going to do these things, they're going to change things, but nothing ever changes. We, we've been through this road for the last, well, at least 50 years where they say they're going to make change and then nothing ever comes of it. When Brian Sinclair died in 2008, I thought we would see systemic change. Nothing happened. We even had an Inuit uh, minister of health at the federal level, and that didn't change anything. So that tells you how entrenched status quo is. And it's not just, you know, if you change healthcare for Indigenous people and you recognize that the systemic uh, racism that's in healthcare is happening not just for us, but for other made vulnerable populations, then we actually might get somewhere. We might actually get to a point where uh, Indigenous and and made vulnerable peoples can go in and feel safe to talk to their doctor, nurse, or whoever it is. The problem is right now you come in, you have 15 minutes to, to say your story. And sometimes we're afraid to say things because we've already experienced racism. So you're not going to tell the doctor or the nurse that you're having heart pain if you don't like them or they're saying something 
racist to you, you're going to kind of sit there and take whatever they tell you that they think is wrong with you and walk back out the door. And then, you know, then we have long-term health problems, right? Like it's not just a today problem. This is a long-term problem and it's not just happening to Indigenous people. However, I can talk well on that point, but I know it's happening to other groups and we're not talking about it. We're not changing medical education fast enough. And the only reason we wouldn't do like rapid um, major overhaul, and it should start in kindergarten to grade 12, all the th- way through to post-secondary, um, and change things so that we have actual education that is educating you how to be a human being again, because that's what we've forgotten. Angela, I want to talk about that because you may or may not. It, it sounds like you, you pay pretty close to First of all, Thank you for taking an interest in the show outside of episodes on which you are appearing. I really appreciate your familiarity with our roster and with some of our past interviews. You know, then that we've spent plenty of time, probably still not enough, but plenty of time talking about Alberta's curriculum. You want to talk about the importance of educating kids early. I mean, people here Mm -hmm. are concerned. Millions of people here are concerned that we're actually moving in the wrong direction there, that we're actually taking steps backward when we perceive that the rest of the country is in a position to at least have an appetite to move forward. Do you sense that that this discovery in Kamloops and we know there will be more? Yes. Do you sense that the public attitude that there's a groundswell here that a government cannot ignore that provincial and federal governments cannot ignore. Are you optimistic that the nation is at a point now that it has not been before? Or do you think that this might fizzle out like everything else? Is that a fear that you have? I, I'm hopeful, but I'm also a realist. And I've watched this happen many times. Uh, you know, the RCAP came out, people got it. Or, well, let's go backwards. The OCAP or OCA happened in 1990. People got really upset Um, You know, you're going to build a golf course on somebody's land that actually got a lot of people talking about Indigenous issues. Then we had the RCAP come out, all of the the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples. um, It's it's 4000 pages. It's it's not like it's a small document. It told you everything. Um, And after that, they created the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We get the apology in 2008. That didn't stir it on. Brian Sinclair dies. That didn't stir it on. Um, we've had inquests. Uh, Cindy Blackstock has been fighting the government on Jordan's principles since like 2009. I don't know uh, more. Yeah. I don't know more happened. We were having like protests, the wet sweat and people are standing in front of the pipeline and people don't seem to care or they're angry because they're doing it instead of going, well, wait, why are you standing there? What does this mean? Hmm. They get angry. Right. So it's, I'm, Hopeful that this has had people go, wait a second, why didn't I learn this in school? But I'm also a realist in saying that, at least in Ontario, it's only in um, the curriculum in grade three, grade six, a little bit in grade eight, and maybe one module, so maybe a couple days in grade 10. That's all you ever learn about Indigenous people. Why is it like that? Yeah, we've had, I know I've, for a fact we could put way more in there. Well, and I think that people, <laughs> like people, People want people have a desire to know. I think that a lot of people and and, and, and I, th- I think some people feel almost like bashful is not a strong enough word, but people are embarrassed um, and people are shamed. Uh, I know that that's a heavy word to use and it probably fits. I mean, people are saying I didn't know about residential schools. People are saying and, and these are people that aren't like 95 years old. 
you know, people yeah. that are around my age, like middle age saying, I, I don't remember talking about this in school. And if we did, we sure didn't talk about it very much. Right. I mean, some circumstances, people are saying people's schools were just down the road from former Indian residential schools. Some yes. people were in close proximity to schools that were still operating in the 1990s. Yeah. And and you think about it, Gord Downey tried to bring awareness to this before his death. Right. He did the Cheney one, Jack. And bless him. He did all of that work. Where did that go? So this 215 children, you know, I bless their souls for trying to wake everybody up. But will it? You know, I want to hope that that's where we're going to go. But we need to change our school systems. We have gotten to the point where we think we're like the Americans and we um, teach our kids about how to get ready for a test. Every province in Canada, and I believe the territories as well, have standardized tests that everybody's got to take. And those standardized tests tell us nothing about the teacher. They don't tell us where the kids are at. We need to get back to real like we need to have teachers who know stuff and that we are going to deal with. Like I remember uh, going to age myself back in the seventies and eighties um, that when we had teachers, they taught us what they knew best or what intrigued them. And if you look at the Finland model, that's exactly what they're doing is they're paying teachers their summer salary for four months of the year. They go and learn about something new so that when they come in the classroom, they can sit down and go, Ryan, this is what we, we're going to talk about this year. And so you get a sense of how excited they are about the topic, which helps to get you excited. And the one thing we need in the 21st century is creative, imaginative, critical thinkers. And we don't turn those out of high school. Like that's not happening. So Angela, we like, you know, people will say, uh, you know, I mean, okay, hang on a second. You guys are talking about, you know, nutrition in residential schools. And then you're talking about people, you know, indigenous people being denied, uh, you know, quality healthcare in many different circumstances, many different realities. By the way, we've heard from healthcare workers. Um, I remember I, I mentioned Dr. Bukala Salami. She joined us from the University of Alberta's Faculty of Nursing a while ago. I guess it was maybe about a month ago or so. And uh, I think it was the beginning of May, right? May 5th, I think she was on. And and, and she talked about, she's like, it's undeniable. And, and after she came on we started getting notes from people that were like i see it people like please don't use my name if you read this letter but i see it i work at this place i see it and then people are gonna go but hang on a second now the doctor and jasper are talking about kindergarten and grade three curriculum and what so let me ask a question that may have an obvious answer but when you talk about addressing racism in healthcare. Uh, among healthcare professionals, we're not calling every healthcare professional a racist, but we're talking about systemic racism in the system of delivery, in the structure. Why is elementary school curriculum so important? Are you talking about because we're graduating the future doctors, nurses, surgeons, triage professionals? Is that why? Yeah, I've actually written a paper that says health and education are interconnected. There is no way to separate them. It's also your health literacy. Do you know when you're supposed to go to an emergency room? Do you know when you're supposed to go see a doctor? Did anybody ever teach you that like hmm. in a formal way or did your parents just tell you this is when you go? Hmm. And because we have free healthcare, we go at different times. So people that have ne are new to our country, doesn't matter how they got here, really doesn't, you know, if they've been here in the last five to 10 years, they've never been taught. When do you go to an emergency room? 
what warrants an emergency room visit? And then we wonder why our healthcare costs go up. Well, because we haven't taught you anything. We haven't given you literacy. Why isn't that part of our K to 12 curriculum? Why aren't we teaching people about how uh, important land is? If we're not taking care of the plants, the trees, the animals, the soil, the water, the birds, the insects, guess what? We're not gonna have a planet in 50 years. I don't even think we'll take that long because we're already seeing the change, right? We're already seeing climate change. This all comes from teaching our children from kindergarten all the way through to grade 12. Then when they get to medical school, they don't have to come and listen to me lecture to them for three hours about stuff that they should have learned at some point in their lives. And they will be better informed as consumers of healthcare because we teach it in K to 12 and they'll know when they have to go to a doctor and what does it mean to go to a doctor? And maybe if our healthcare systems weren't so regimented that you only get 15 minutes with a doctor, then maybe we could actually get to the point of looking at holistic problems because looking at the ones, you know, the set of symptoms saying it's this diagnosis, giving a treatment and booting somebody out the door doesn't tell you if there's, you know, domestic violence going on in the home, somebody has suicidal ideation, somebody's using drugs, uh, they're homeless, or they're temporarily houseless. Um, none of those things are being talked about. We're not talking about it in K to 12. We're, so then doctors, you go into the doctor's office, you talk to him for 15 minutes, he knows nothing about you, um, him or her. And I think that it's important that we start talking about doing more holistic treatment. I'm not saying everybody should have an indigenous healer. That's not where I'm going. It would be lovely if we had that too, but I'm talking about just our general Western biomedical healthcare. Why is it you only get 15 minutes and that's all that a, a pro provincial government will pay for when in reality, they should be knowing more about you so that they can make a proper diagnosis. Maybe it's about something that's not about the symptom you came in with. We have to be better. You've just opened up it. You have not opened up a can. You have opened up a barrel of worms now. And, and, then, I can, and then I can talk to you about and we're This is a, this is a national interview. We're talking to you from Toronto and the, the, the country is going to listen to this. And I'm going to bring it back to Alberta where uh, the, the dust up between the Ministry of Health and the doctors here is also included. Mm -hmm. The health minister pulling away a bunch of health modifier codes, which we won't get in the weeds. It gets boring, but. This is how physicians are able to reflect spending more time with their patients. They can tack on nine bucks or 11 bucks or whatever the modifier code is so they can spend a bit more time. But as business persons themselves with full waiting rooms without those modifier codes, it's a guarantee that the appointments are going to stay at 15 minutes because they have to generate that many patients going through to be able to keep their lights on. I mean, this is an entirely different conversation, but it's all intertwined. Yes. That's the theme yep. of what we're realizing here, isn't it? These are all intertwined. And we can't separate them. No matter how much you try, we can't separate them. And in fact, if they would up the number of people who can go into nurse practitioner uh, degrees, right? And we would allow midwives to have the same amount of say as a doctor does. Uh, if nurses actually got paid for what they actually do, oh my God, what a change in our world that would be. You know, nurse practitioners are supposed to be the equivalent to doctors, but one step down. I didn't make that rule. That's the way it is. But we could technically increase the number of nurse practitioners. We could um, do a lot. We, I'm telling you, if we looked at somebody sitting down and talking for 30 minutes with a healthcare provider, 
we might actually save a lot more money than saying, hey, put a $9 code on there and we'd save a lot more lives. We would change that. That's a very upstream approach to change. And I do public health, I do healthcare. And I can tell you that if we're not going to do this upstream approach, we're paying for it downstream. So you don't deal with the 15 year old who's feeling a little depressed and comes in very sheepishly to talk to a a healthcare professional and they don't ask any questions about what's going on in their life outside of that, you know, that issue. Um, You're sending them back to further mull around in that space in their head that's telling them this is a horrible world. And then we're wondering why we have high suicide rates. And I don't mean this just amongst Indigenous people. This is everybody. We're wondering why that 15-year-old when he's 30 is having problems keeping a job, which means he can't feed his family or he's not eating. So we have food insecurity problems. Like this is this is a systemic thing, right? Like this is like systemic racism. Our institutions are broke. They were meant for a smaller population who had a much different uh, base of work and they were cracked up and made up in you know, 150, 200 years ago by a government that wasn't even on our shores. The British made up some of our laws. They made up some of the things that we do, the things that we take for granted. So if we're actually going to do something, let's step up Canada. We've got to figure out what it is we want. Where are we going? We can't keep pretending like climate change isn't happening. We can't pretend like systemic racism isn't happening. And we certainly can't pretend like this is great. And we want to go to post COVID because we want it all back the way it was. Well, guess what? It wasn't working for 90% of us. So let's not go there. Dr. Angela Master Pringle, our guest. It's, it's so fascinating. I mean, it's like what I'm making such an obvious statement here, but you know, conversations about health, Healthcare, health policy, um, in my mind, have evolved to include conversations about things like racism, environmentalism, and like you didn't hear that. I mean, I, I'm thinking even over the course of my career, which is you know the last 15 years or so, that window as an interviewer. I mean, it, that evolution is happening, which I think is interesting and it's encouraging to me because it, it does indicate an awareness of more of a holistic approach. You talk about indigenous medicines or an indigenous approach to healthcare. When you talk about autonomy, uh, which I'm sure you will argue does not exist and has never existed, but what might I mean, if, if we were to paint a picture of what the future could look like and it may look different, um, you know, in, in, in a downtown Vancouver setting or, or, or in Montreal, as, as it may at, at a, in a remote indigenous community in northern Manitoba, for example, it may look different. But how do you see? Healthcare. Let's call it intuitive healthcare. Let's call it healthcare that respects traditions. Let's call it healthcare as a as a result of. Can I say a post rec? I'll, I'll acknowledge reconciliation would be an ongoing commitment. But if I can say post reconciliation or a woke healthcare design, what might it look like? Well, when I wrote my dissertation, that was just under 10 years ago, and what I called the ideal First Nations healthcare system would include traditional healing. So that would be using our traditional medicines, but also having access to biomedicine so that the healers could talk to the doctors. (laughs) You know, they don't want to be separated, but they're also busy doing their work that they don't get a chance to talk about a patient very often. So, you know, having some kind of uh, hybrid Indigenous health teams, which I know um, Northern Health Health in BC has, and uh, if you look at South Central Foundation in Alaska, they've 
the Alaskan Native people have now owned their hospital, so they get to dictate what happens. And I, I was talking to um, a colleague in Hawaii, and they grow the, the traditional medicines just outside the door. Now, mind you, in Hawaii, they can do that. We can't do that in our winters. Um, but, you know, can you imagine you could have traditional healers coming, picking the medicines they need and going in and talking to the patient in a hospital or in a clinic? Um, and why is that we can't do that? Like, what's preventing us? What's I can tell you one of the things uh, government said, yeah, you can have traditional healers, but we want to accredit them like we do doctors. Hello, it's a it's a lifetime process to become a healer and residential schools pretty much wiped out most of our healers. We have healers, but it takes a long time to learn them. And, you know, you can't accredit that. That's not like becoming a nurse or a doctor. This is like a lifetime of learning where to pick the medicines, what the medicines are used for. And so would that know, be would that be like an individual that came with, you know, for lack of a better word, that came with the endorsement of an indigenous yes. community? Yes, definitely. Like, and so, that's what so recognized as a healer, but not government yes. accredited through a college, for example. Right. And I think that that's where governments get scared because they can't regulate it. And that's what they're so used to doing. And so, you know, they're just like, no, can't do this. It's phenomenal. We could talk for hours because there's so many little pieces that are missing that we're, you know, I, I think about um, not many years ago, Chinese medicine or Eastern uh, medicine was not allowed in our hospitals or in our in our healthcare spaces. And now people go for acupuncture like it's nobody's business. I'm not saying that it's only uh, a Chinese medicine, but like this is exactly what I'm getting at is there's so much out there that we haven't even talked about. And, you know, and literacy, people need to know when do you go do that? When do you go to a naturopath? When do you go to a traditional healer? Yeah. We don't tell them any of these things. There's so much, very, so much. My uh, this is just a, a throwaway comment, but my wife go, goes to a pretty interesting health clinic. It's it's where she gets her personal health care and she has a physician there um, and she also has an acupuncturist and she also has a nutritionist and she also has a, a holistic professional that works with her on some of the more. Uh, I mean, I would say unconventional, but probably the word is traditional, right? Some of the yeah. more traditional methods. I mean, it's it's a really interesting um, it's a really interesting structure, this clinic and how it's organized, um, because you do have the, G the GP, the family doctors there yeah. working in concert with all the others. If you were to to uh, to apply an indigenous approach there um, and, and first and foremost, make it available, readily available and accessible and, and, and non threatening, yeah. as a matter of fact, inviting uh, in these communities, I think the remark, you know, I mean, you'd see remarkable results. We've touched on mental health. And, you know, I mean, there have been alarm bells ringing. Uh, yes. I mean, in particular, I mean, death by suicide is, is an enormous issue across the country, as you've mentioned, with non-indigenous and, in, and indigenous people. But we do see disproportionate rates. As a matter of fact, in some communities, we've seen states of emergencies declared because mm -hmm. of so many deaths by suicide over short periods of time, in many cases, tragically involving young people. I mean, we could talk for hours about how tragedies like these occur over time with regards to, to a loss of culture, to a loss of identity, to a loss of confidence, to a loss of trust. I mean, there are so many things yes. that factor in. But how do we begin to address, do you think, talking about health, mental health is a huge part of it. 
How do we begin to address that with indigenous people and indigenous communities? We need to talk about the truth, which brings us back to Kamloops. If we're not talking about the truth, how are we ever going to get to reconciliation? What I see Canadians often wanting to do is jump from, um, you know, nothing to reconciliation, but we haven't talked about the truth. And today I'm wearing my medicine wheel. Um, so as Algonquin people, this is the colors that we use. And we would say you have to be balanced in all four directions. You need to be balanced physically, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And when one of those comes out of, of, of balance, you're supposed to go take the time to bring it back and balance. Um, we're sitting here talking on Zoom um, and, you know, that's not physical. So we're not physically active. So what are we going to do to counterbalance that? We're talking, we're using our mental abilities and some, for me, some emotional uh, abilities, but we didn't smudge. We didn't use any spirituality in today's conversation. So again, it's just trying to bring balance in everything you do. We can't pretend like our, our world is perfect. I, I know I keep saying that, but it's really about our humanity. We've forgotten about how to be human. And we've forgotten how to interact with people. I was talking to somebody else recently and I said, you know, before we would have thought nothing of, we knew a family down the street that was uh, maybe struggling with the pandemic. They didn't have money. We would have taken them food. Where do, are people doing that right now? Or are they just going to food banks and dropping off some cans? Mm -hmm. Like it's more personable if I come to you as a person and try to help out. And this is the piece I think we really need to start talking about is how do we get back to that humanity? That's what Canadians are, were always known for, right? We were always known for um, helping out our neighbors for doing stuff in a community or a neighborhood. And now it seems like that's almost gone. And I feel like if we started to have those conversations, my neighbors all know that I'm indigenous. They often ask me uh, strange questions about in being indigenous and indigenous. Um, so I'm just thinking, like, can you imagine if we actually had conversations where it wasn't racist or microaggression remarks, but rather true conversations so that we could get to know each other? We we got forced into many different uh, federal policies where it seems like uh, Indigenous people should be separated from everybody else, including reserves and the Indian Act. But really, it's it's about having conversations, true and authentic conversations where we're building friendships and relationships and we aren't going to be able to survive uh as a, as humans if we don't start having these conversations let alone that we're not having conversations about what's wrong in our world um people get very antsy when you talk about politics people get very antsy when you talk about education or healthcare. I mean, I always have the good topics, right? Um, talking about these always make people want to talk. These are the topics that are always first and foremost on everybody's agenda. I mean, the only reason that we're going to stop talking now is because I have another interview to do. Uh, you, next time you're next time, Sarah and I already know. Next time you're coming on the show, Doc, you're you're here for like six hours, so just buckle up. <laughs> And, and maybe I mean, I'm trying I'm not trying to be I, I say this in absolute sincerity. Maybe we could find some way to, to do a smudge or so. Maybe we could. I mean, I, I'm, I'm really, um, you know, I, I hosted an event pre pandemic. As a matter of fact, just days before the very beginning of March of 2020. And um, it was the Alberta Emergency Management uh, Summit. So you have these emergency managers from different communities and all these types of things. And, 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 and you know, fire chiefs and, and, and elected officials and indigenous leaders were in the room as well. And uh, I was privy to at the very opening 
of the conference, a smudge and a pipe ceremony and with, with very limited understanding of the cultural significance, but an openness mm-hmm. to it. Um, I can tell you and I see people on our live chat right now talking about some of the vigils that they've attended relating to 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 the Kamloops uh, discovery, um, talking about the smell of sweetgrass, even non-indigenous people saying about the talking about the, the calming effect. You have some right there with you. The, there you go. The, you know, the calming effect that it has. And there is this real power to bring it back to my experience there, the privilege of, of being involved in that ceremony. It does something to you, even if you don't oh, understand, yes. you know, you you sort of attend and you're, you're there uh, sort of in prayer in a sense. In other words, I make myself available mentally, emotionally and spiritually, physically as well, of course. Um, and it does something. And I think that there is a real power there. Um, if for no other reason that you, you are gathering in community and respecting tradition and it's big. And you're pulling your mind. So part of smudging, I'm not the elder, but I'm going to try to give you a little synopsis. But smudging allows you to bring all your minds together, bring all your hearts together. And part of why you do that is to cleanse yourself. So I'm just looking over my smudge kits beside me. Um, It's to cleanse your eyes so I see you in a good way. It's to to cleanse my mouth so I'm I'm speaking in a good way. I cleanse my ears so I can hear you in a good way. I cleanse my brain so I'm thinking in a good way. And I cleanse my heart so I'm talking in a good way. So when I say that, um, while that sounds like some, you know, new ager kind of idea it's the idea that we're we're trying to bring ourselves together and in a way that we're synergizing our energies that's what the elders always tell us we need to synergize we need to connect on multiple levels we can't fix the world's problems with old world thinking which is albert einstein's you know phrase so the only way we're going to fix the problems we have in canada right now is when we start to think in a new way doctor how do you how do you pronounce your community is is it Timiskaming, is that how you say it? Timiskaming. Timiskaming, the Timiskaming First Nation. Uh, Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle, um, out of the Indigenous, or the Institute, rather, for Indigenous Health. Uh, I'm just going to read, rattle off your CV here. I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable, Doc. you got to sit through this. Um, the Associate Director Professor at the Wachmanis Bryce Institute for Indigenous Health at the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto, Director of the Masters of Public Health Indigenous Health Program, Director of the Collaborative Specialization in Indigenous Health, Founding Editor of the Turtle Island Journal on Indigenous Health, and, and obviously a compelling speaker. Um, I don't know if you have our live chat going beside you. Uh, I assume not because you've seemed rather focused and it pulls my focus away every t- every time I dip in. But let me just say people on mass are indicating their gratitude uh, for what you've brought to the table today. Thank you for this. And I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Chi miigwech. You bet. Dr. Angela Mashford Pringle. Some random guy in the live chat says uh, you got to stop promising six hour interviews with like literally everybody you talk to. Um, I will not stop making those promises. Uh, I will not apologize for compelling interviews on the show. Well, I have definitely made a note how she has uh, that new research that she's planning. Yeah. So we'll definitely have to have her back. Yeah, absolutely. You're sort of like, uh, I'm trying to think, I don't know enough baseball to really come up with the, uh, I was going to say you're like the, this is like Barry Bonds and Mark McGuire 15 years ago, but people would probably read too much into like the cream and the clear and the steroid allegation, which is not what I mean, but you, are you talking about my amazing biceps? I'm talking about, well, That's what you're talking well, about. Close, right? Look at the, close, look at the, but I'm no, talking about the, uh, the bookings. It's like hmm. back to back jacks as they say. So a great job by Sarah Hoyles, um, getting the voices that matter as part of these conversations. 
I wanted to read this email that we received uh, from G. Before we move on, we're going to talk about El Salvador and Bitcoin and all that stuff that's going on. But a great email from G, the subject line 215. And I'm going to get to that in just a minute. Uh, First, I want to remind you that we receive our emails on MacBook Pros. Uh, We read our tweets on iMacs. I get my mentions on the show on the iPhone and Sam's running the whole thing on the iMac. The studio is powered by Westworld computers. They'd love to power your startup too, whether it's at home, whether it's in the office, they have the solution and their team of customer service experts, plus their team, of course, of technicians able to answer whatever challenge you may have. They've been doing it for more than 40 years, family owned. They can do it all online as well. Shipping anywhere via westworld.ca. We check our hashtag RealTalkRJ powered by the team at Park Power at parkpower.ca. If you use the promo code 2021-RealTalk, you know by now I tell you every single day, 70 bucks off your first bill. But I guarantee, I know that there's going to be somebody today you're going to act today. Today's the day you're going to go, why have I just been leaving 70 bucks pinned up to the bulletin board? Why have I not walked up and taken that 70 bucks? Why not take your business to Park Power? You can do it again, the promo code 2021-REALTALK. And a big shout out to the team at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. I'm hitting the road this weekend in my Jeep. And I know I'm not alone. The lineup... Uh, from the you know the little puddle jumpers like we call them the grocery getters the good fuel efficient city rigs jeeps got that all the way up to the big brands that grand wagoneer on its way back going toe to toe against all the big luxury suvs everybody likes to talk about i like to think that lincoln navigator sales are about to plunge when the jeep grand wagoneers start showing up on the lots at st albert and sherwood dodge you can check out their inventory online just follow the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us an email g says i just want to say i really appreciate conversations you've been having uh around issues pertinent to indigenous peoples on real talk even before the discovery of the 215 babies why do i appreciate the conversation in part says g because i'm first nations you know i have i have the luck of being a white appearing treaty indian in this fair country of ours my own upbringing was not on a reserve our family moved to a different province, so only, we only visited our reserve to see family, but I have very fond memories of going home. I've always been vocal and have never shied away from talking about my family. I didn't grow up blind to the history of residential schools because my mom and her siblings went to residential school. It was known that kids died in these places. It was known that there were kids that were not accounted for. But but knowing doesn't mean it doesn't hurt, right? You, Ryan, you spoke of walking through a cemetery last weekend in tears. I, too, had tears. I had tears as I laid shoes that belonged to my daughter at the base of the Catholic statue at the legislature grounds. I brought a teddy bear of hers as well, and I tucked sage into her shoes, and I cried as I watched a young girl named Meadow dance in her jingle dress in front of that statue. G says you should go to the Facebook page, smudge the blades and watch Meadow dance. She is what should never have been taken away. She is the representation of the spirits of babies that were not allowed to be held by their families as they left the world and then were hidden away. I'm glad these children have been found. We all need to have these tough conversations. It's good to talk about this and to be honest. You know that there are things that people can't talk about. 
Residential school is something my mother's generation has an incredibly difficult time talking about. My siblings, cousins, and I have said many times that it will likely, as a matter of fact, require the death of the older generation for our family to be able to openly discuss the trauma. There's anger and there's hurt if we are discovered to be talking about this history by our family members. The trauma is too deep. So we wait, holding our breath, snatching small moments of truth, tucking that truth away to remember and to learn from it. Imagine not being able to speak with your family about such a large part of your history, because this isn't just, you know, the one family member who has PTSD from the war that they fought in. This is every person who attended these schools, in my case, with my family. So you think, well, hey, I I could probably go on some ancestry website and learn, except no, because people are missing there are missing names and even the records that were capped are hard to find they're missing information they were poorly handled very few photographs we still live via spoken history except the people that hold it will not speak this year is the cutoff for people who went to indian day schools to apply for compensation that's a whole other conversation says g and the supports aren't there for people filling out the forms at least with residential schools there were more supports for people struggling to fill out the paperwork so again many people struggle as they relive trauma and write it into small boxes not to get a payout but to hold people accountable for what happened i hope that you keep having these conversations they're more important than you know Because at times you're not just educating settlers, you're providing opportunities for people like me to have conversations that are denied to me. G says, I'd also like to extend a personal invitation to to attend a blanket exercise when we're allowed to conduct them again, says I work with a great group of youth that do it well, and it's very impactful. There's nothing like doing a blanket exercise with a group of teens and adults to see it in full generational light. G says, thanks for providing a space for real talk. Well, save me a spot at the blanket ceremony and I'll be there. You can send us your email anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. And we so appreciate the powerful emails that we've received. Let's take a look at a story that's been making news internationally when it comes to currencies, when it, when it, when it comes to official currencies. This is described as a milestone in monetary history. You can check out Forbes.com for the piece on the significance of what's just occurred in El Salvador. It's written by Ovik Roy from the Foundation of, uh, for Research on Equal Opportunity, also a policy editor at Forbes. Also joining us for a conversation on this, the founder and CEO of our presenting sponsor, Bitcoin Well, Adam O'Brien. It's great to have you both here. Looking forward to this conversation. Ovik, making your debut on the show. Welcome. We're we're thrilled to have you. Why don't you sum this up for us? I mean, you literally wrote the piece on it in a tiny little publication called Forbes that people may have heard about. Why is this so significant? What went down in El Salvador? Well, first, let me say, as a guy who grew up north of Windsor in uh, suburban Detroit, watching Channel 9, Hockey Night in Canada when the Wings and the Leafs play, it's always a, a pleasure to be on Canadian media. Um, well, in terms of this particular story, look, I, I think this is one of the most important uh, developments in recent memory when it comes to financial history and the global financial system. This is incredibly important because for the last 50 years, we've been living under this system 
where uh, currencies float against each other in, a, in what you might call a, a market-based system. There's no gold standard, right? We left the gold standard, the world left the gold standard after the end of Bretton Woods. Nixon ended it in 1971. Now you have a country, uh, the, the smallest country in North America, actually, saying, look, we are going to create a system in which the U.S. dollar is competing against a, a 21st century monetary network in which the, the value of all the Bitcoins in the world or the, the number of circulating Bitcoins in the world is fixed. And so there, there's no um, unelected bureaucracy like the Federal Reserve that can just magically increase the supply of US dollars by 30% in, in 12 months like the Fed just did. That is an incredible development. And, and really what it shows and I, what I wrote about in the most recent piece is that innovation, disruptive innovation starts in low income countries. It starts with low margin products. It starts humbly, much in the way that Toyota and Honda, you know, started with small compact cars, brought those into the US and took on Detroit where Detroit didn't care. Detroit didn't care if they lost on compact cars because they were still selling trucks and SUVs and luxury cars. And all of a sudden the Japanese figured out how to beat them on that too. Right, and here's something that, that may happen with monetary policy. If El Salvador figures out how to make Bitcoin work for the 70% of Salvadorans who don't even have bank accounts, then it's going to work everywhere. Adam, you're in the business of Bitcoin. Uh, I know that this is a story that, that obviously you've been paying keen attention to. From your perspective, why is this so significant? Yeah, I mean, this this might make for boring uh, boring media. I think Olivia and I are going to agree on a lot of things. Uh I think that you know the key is is calling it a milestone, um, which I think insinuates this is not the end. This is not uh, kind of the final chapter for Bitcoin. This is this is the start um, at Bitcoin 2021, where this was announced. Um, you know, people were calling this kind of the first pitch of the first inning for Bitcoin, and I tend to agree with that. I think that uh, you know we're in the business of making Bitcoin accessible and making Bitcoin usable, and here we are in. Um, in El Salvador and, and the government is making it law that you have to make Bitcoin usable, that you have to make Bitcoin accessible. Um, you know, Elon Musk is maybe eating a little bit of pro right now because uh, he has to sell Teslas for Bitcoin in El Salvador. Um, it, it's, it's remarkable to see a government taking uh, this monetary policy that is so sound and, and uh, incapable of being corrupt um, into its, its monetary cycle. And I think that's that's really important and, and an obvious win for Bitcoin. Let me let me uh, Ovik, I'm curious for your take on this, uh, Sam. I want to share my screen here just so people can see it. So so this gives people a sense of what it, it's it's been a tumultuous uh, month or so. It's been it's been a very interesting 2021 for crypto. Bitcoin in particular uh, right now valued at about let's call it about, you know, 40,000, 40, 40,475 Canadian right now. Um, a lot of people, I think, right now are using the word unstable or unpredictable. I don't know if any currency is predictable, but but the instability here yet ovic i've heard a lot of people suggest that that this move could bring some stability to el salvador's bottom line or to to, to the reality there the economic reality do you buy that and can you help us sort out or make sense of that yeah so first of all before i started doing what i do now i actually spent 12 years as a fund manager in new york and boston so i spent a lot of time thinking about volatility returns and things like that and look Bitcoin's only 12 years old. So you don't go from a $0 asset to a trillion dollar asset in market value without some volatility along the way, right? It doesn't just go up a dollar a day, right? It's going to go up and down. 
But here's the thing, you know, you should people talk about the tumult and the volatility as a negative thing. Oh gosh, got to stay away from Bitcoin. It's too volatile. But here's the thing. If you actually do what's calculate, what's called a sharp ratio, which is the risk adjusted return, meaning how much has Bitcoin gone up relative to, relative to its volatility, it outperforms every single major stock index in the world. The TSX, the S&P 500, pick your poison. Bitcoin on a volatility adjusted basis has outperformed every single one of those asset classes. So from an investment standpoint, in the at least over the past 12 years, Bitcoin has been a better investment despite the volatility than conventional uh, asset classes. Now, here's the thing that El Salvador is doing to take into account, like, look, if you're running a business, if you're running a grocery store or a bodega on the street corner, and you're transacting in both US dollars and Bitcoin, and the value of those two uh, currencies is changing all the time, you know, that's kind of complicated for you, right? So the, the government is setting up this backend infrastructure so that if you don't like the volatility of Bitcoin, you can have all those purchases or sales in Bitcoin instantly converted to dollars at the at the market price, and then you don't have to think about it anymore. It's just basically a back-end easy way to transact uh, the money. On the other hand, if you do want to park some of your uh, your profits or your 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 savings into Bitcoin to take advantage of those risk-adjusted returns over time, you now have the option to do that, and you will not pay capital gains on that uh, those returns relative to the U.S. dollar because Bitcoin is legal tender, an official national currency of El Salvador. As the president said last night, one BTC is one BTC. Hmm. Let's take I mean, it's been, it's been fascinating. I, w- I want to talk to you both about the president just like dropping in on Twitter spaces and doing interviews. And like it was just it, it, it's been it's been a wild few days. Um, here's one of the tweets that, that we were keeping an eye on. I mean, it's just been really a, an interesting story to follow. Uh, and, and you can see here just the the, the conversations uh the, uh, we had uh, sort of El Salvador's president has been tweeting about it and, and we'll get to some of the different messages there. You can see here, you know, I've just sent the Bitcoin law to Congress. I mean, I, people are looking at this and like, is that a verified account? Is this real? People are trying to make, you know, and then all of a sudden the president's showing up and he's, and he's doing interviews and, and people are going, you know, just with like, not just with, cause I'm probably in the same boat, but like just with, you know, digital media platforms, people that are like, he's not on, he's not talking to the wall street journal. He's not talking to the New York times. And people are going, this is like when you talk about the word disruption, when you use the word disruption, I think it's being overused. I think a lot of people perceive themselves to be disruptors when really they're not. They're purveyors of the status quo. This certainly qualifies. Uh, Adam, what has this done from your perspective when it comes to some of the conversations that you may be having with naysayers, with people within the industry? What has this done? Well, maybe I should use the word to Bitcoin's credibility, or do you think to, to, to the credibility of the bigger conversation around crypto? This has to be a mile marker. Yeah, big time. I, I think, you know, it's it's, it's very very poetic that a a commodity or, or a cryptocurrency uh, made for the people is you know and the president is is, is using direct to consumer or uh, those types of communications platforms um, without the kind of middleman. I think it's 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 kind of showing where the world is going. Um, as far as the credibility to, to, to Bitcoin, I mean it's it's a no brainer. Uh, I think if you if you talked about it in 2014, people would say, well, only criminals use use Bitcoin, and then in 2016 it was well. I'll, you know, only a small section of, of, of geeks use Bitcoin. And then in 2018, it was, well, you know, really only a small number of people uh, in, in very select countries use Bitcoin. And now the conversation as well, only small countries use Bitcoin. And so I'm very excited to see what happens in 2023, 2025. 
you know, who the only um, people are using uh, Bitcoin. So certainly the credibility uh, is massive. I think it's telling too that El Salvador, just like, you know, Michael Saylor um, at MicroStrategies, it, you know, this, this, this narrative that central banks cannot be trusted with with money printing uh, the monetary policy within central banks is, is garbage and i think that bitcoin fixes that and i think that uh the way bitcoin is catching on with these massive headlines is very telling of that ovic would you agree with that what adam just said about the, the, the lack of credibility or some mistrust around central banks and bitcoin being the answer to that well you know uh what i would say is that there's this kind of paradox of human nature which is that at the precise moment where you think you're on top of the world and you can do no wrong and anything you do is going to work is when you mess up. And I think that's the case with the U.S. Federal Reserve. You know, the U.S. Federal Reserve has dined out on now a $28 trillion public debt in the United States, being able to increase the money supply without anyone really punishing the U.S. for it because there has been for so long, so many decades, no real alternative to the U.S. dollar. If you're, if you're a $3 trillion financial institution or you're a sovereign government, you've got to park your money somewhere, you're going to park it in U.S. dollars in the form of treasury bonds because there's nothing else more liquid that you can buy to just park your money if you've got that kind of money sloshing around. Now you have this new asset emerging that over time may be competitive with uh, the US dollar as a store of value, as a liquid store of value. And it's at that moment where you're kind of starting to see those curves intersect where the, you know, the Fed says, well, we can increase the monetary supply by 30% and no one's gonna care because, hey, who stopped us th thus far? And all of a sudden people are saying, well, wait a minute, we now have an alternative place to park our money because we don't trust you. And that's how the ball starts going in the other direction. So, Ovik, let me ask you about your newest piece here. Forbes.com is where people can read it. El Salvador enacts Bitcoin law ushering in new era of global monetary inclusion. Let me give you the caveat. Or, or I'll impose one rule here. You can't say everybody. The question is, <laughs> who's paying close attention to this? Is President Joe Biden is is the U.S. Treasury is like who's paying who's paying very close attention? I don't want to call it an experiment, but who's paying attention to El Salvador? Well, uh, first of all, I think I think in terms of just you know what the visibility of this is, uh, it's got the the fact that the law passed got a lot of visibility. I think in all the financial news sources in the United States, the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, you know those kinds of venues, Bloomberg. Uh, this was pretty well covered. So I think anyone who follows financial and economic news uh, knows about this in the United States. Um, certainly people in um, uh, uh, regulatory bodies like uh, the Federal Reserve, like the Int International Monetary Fund, you know, those people are also paying attention because this, you know, this really directly uh, affects macroeconomic and monetary policy. So people in that kind of corner of the world are definitely in interested. Uh, financial markets are definitely interested. Um, and you're seeing, like, look at all the top hedge fund managers in the U.S. over the last 12 months who've come out and said, you know what? If I look at all the tools I have to protect my fund and my investors against inflation, Bitcoin's at the top of the list in terms of undervalued tools to protect my, my, my partners against inflation. So you're seeing more and more people aware of that. And we're starting to see the inflation news get worse around the world and in the United States. So uh, I think you're starting to see a lot more of this. And again, it's kind of a, it's kind of a snowball effect. Like we have this $28 trillion debt. 
Uh, Joe Biden is uh, is proposing six trillion more of spending that will be paid for in who knows how exactly ways, uh, and and so these kinds of things accelerate the mistrust because if you print all this debt in terms of issuing treasury bonds, and other governments say, hey, we know you're broke, United States, why are, why should we buy this debt? It's kind of like when when you're you're running your credit card and you can't really pay the bills and the bank pulls your credit card. Basically, that's kind of what's happening to the treasury bond. People, are, the d- demand internationally for treasury bonds is declining and demand for Bitcoin is increasing. And that's a trickle effect now, but over time, it could be a much more significant effect. And this El Salvador news does so much, so much to transform the institutional resilience of Bitcoin. Uh, that's why it's such a significant piece of news. Adam, let me. I, I know that you appreciate Adam. You ask for the tough questions from audience members. There's one here from Whitrium says. So hang on a second. So you're a business, and you've just accepted Bitcoin as payment for a product, but the next day, next day, Bitcoin falls, and now you've lost money on the transaction. Currencies need to be stable. Bitcoin is not that. What would you say to Whitrium? Yeah, that's a. I think that's a fair point. Um, I think that, you know, my answer is kind of twofold. So one, there are tools out there. So the, the announcer um, of this, of this project in, in El Salvador is called Jack Mallers and Jack owns a company called strike. Uh, he's the one working with El Salvador um, and has created the tools to eliminate the volatility uh, in the same way that Ovik was just talking about, um, you know, Bitcoin becomes a, a, a visa or a MasterCard um, type of payment rail where uh, Bitcoin gets sent to the, to, to the merchant uh, immediately that Bitcoin is, is converted into us dollars and the merchant uh, receives us dollars. So right then and there, the volatility risk is virtually nullified because um, you're converting it in real time. Uh, Second to that, though, I would not call our existing currency stable. Uh, We don't see the massive jumps and spikes like we do in Bitcoin because we don't compare uh, the Canadian dollar or the U.S. dollar to anything other than the Canadian or the U.S. dollar. But if you look at inflation over time, if you look at the way uh, prices are increasing like crazy right now, it's not because assets are getting more valuable. I mean, you look at the housing markets on fire, the lumber markets on fire, the oil markets on fire, everything. Prices are increasing, 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 increasing. Uh, not because things are getting more valuable, but because the money that we use to buy those things is getting less valuable. Uh, in my experience, uh, I've only been on this this earth for 28 short years, but I've never seen prices go down, uh, which which makes me think, uh, hmm, I think this is this is inflation, and this might be the start of, of kind of a hyperinflationary state. Um, and I and so I, I wouldn't necessarily call our existing monetary system uh, stable. You know, let me add something to that because um, you know we, we've been talking a lot about the volatility, but one thing to remember is that. The U.S. dollar and the Canadian dollar and currencies like uh, those currencies, mainstream, a large country, advanced industrial, industrialized currencies, they're guaranteed to lose value over time under the current monetary system we have because of inflation, right? So if you actually look at a chart of what a Canadian dollar or U.S. dollar buys in terms of groceries, that it's a straight line down over the last 70, 80, 90 years, right? Um, you know, the, the the analogy that Michael Saylor uses is the melting ice cube. You know, maybe in certain parts of Canada, ice doesn't melt. So maybe Canadians don't understand this analogy. But in the U.S., ice cubes melt. And, and over time, you know, that ice cube of your savings is guaranteed to go down. If you, if you have $100 in the bank over a 30-year period, you're guaranteed to lose 60% of the value of that U.S. dollar, even at 2% inflation, right? So that's a guaranteed loser. And so the question is, yes, there's volatility, but would you rather go with something that's almost guaranteed to go up over the very long term in value or something that's guaranteed to go down over the long term in value? 
Okay, so we'll close by. I want to ask the two of you to make a prediction uh, because, Adam, you've been on before. We've had conversations about pushback from big banks, about, I won't say threats, but let me say indications of concern from significant political leadership in some pretty big countries, I know, including the president of the United States. Do the two of you think that Bitcoin would ever be adopted, ever, as an official currency in Canada and or the United States. Adam, what do you think? I think it's inevitable if uh, Canada and or the United States wants to remain relevant. I think that uh, we are seeing Bitcoin do what Bitcoin does best, which is create a free and open market. I think El Salvador is the first of many uh, small and hopeful countries that are looking uh, for alternative ways to gain wealth and achieve sovereignty. And I think that uh, adding Bitcoin to the balance sheet, adding Bitcoin as tender uh, is making governments look at that and think, how am I going to remain competitive when countries are so forward thinking and and adopting this incredible monetary policy such as Bitcoin? So I would say uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that yes, um, but if not, I think that that will be to the peril of Canada and the United States. Ovik, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think over the very long term or long term, uh, moving to a more traditional hard currency type standard is 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 going to have to happen if if these countries want to be competitive with the Bitcoin standard. But I will say it doesn't have to be Bitcoin specifically, right? You could have a di- you could have an, an, an indigenous standard where you say this is the fixed number of dollars that we're going to issue and we're going to cap that and we're going to promise that somehow um, and move in that way. And maybe you get some enough of the way there that people uh, people are okay with that. But certainly uh, moving to a Bitcoin standard would be the most, um, I think that would be the simplest thing to do. I just think it's going to be hard for the U.S. to accept that the U.S. dollar is not supreme. So the question for the U.S. and for Canada is, do we do we only adopt a Bitcoin standard af- after a massive economic and monetary and fiscal dislocation in our countries where we have real crises where a lot of people are hurt? Or do we, uh, or do we tack into the wind and actually go, you know, to go in the direction that we should be going and gradually move ourselves into a, a sounder mon- money posture, so that the transition to a Bitcoin-based monetary policy is smoother for our people and for our economies? That's the question in front of policymakers today, and uh, we all have to do our part to, to hope that uh, to encourage policymakers to make that choice. Ovik Roy is a policy editor at Forbes, uh, joining us from the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. Adam O'Brien, the founder and CEO of Bitcoin Well. Appreciate your perspectives on this, fellas. Thanks for making time for us. Thanks so much. You can let me know what you think about this. I know we've we've got uh, we've got audience members like like hounds are watching hounds say this was an absolutely monumental moment for Bitcoin. And then he has like the head exploding emoji. And then we've got some people that are that are absolutely adamantly against the entire concept or premise or existence of Bitcoin or any type of crypto. And I see some 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 assertive comments being made on the on the live chat, which is great. We encourage your feedback. We understand that not every can you imagine if I was doing interviews that that would only cover ground where everybody would agree on absolutely every single thing. This would be the most boring talk show of all time. But what we cannot ignore, you know, I saw one audience member say, hey, I understand Ryan needs to pay the bills. I understand there needs to be paid content. A nation, a country just voted 
to adopt cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, as official legal tender, as a legal currency. That is a story. Some people believe that crypto will be more relevant than what other people believe that it may be, and that's perfectly fine, and only time will tell. I'm fascinated by it. I'm very intrigued by it. I still approach from a very limited understanding of how it will apply and what it will look like. And I'm wide open to your feedback on why you back it, why you invest in it, why you think it's the greatest thing since sliced bread, or why you think it's, to quote POTUS one more time, malarkey. Talk at ryanjesperson.com is where you can send us your emails. Do not ever hold back on our live chat. Not that you would. I know you wouldn't, but we want to hear from you no matter what. Thanks to everybody, our engaged listeners. We really appreciate it. You know, the team at Kubi Energy wants us to remind you that their teams right now are working across Western Canada on residential, commercial, and industrial applications, helping people and businesses, some of them nonprofits, achieve their sustainability goals with solar panel installs. They're Tesla certified. They've got electricians and electrical apprentices doing all the installs, plus their team handles all the paperwork. What could be easier than that. It all starts with a visit to kubienergy.ca or if you're already on our website, ryanjesperson.com, just click over to the sponsors tab. That's where you'll find them. And don't forget to send us your emails, your positive reflections. We're taking Monday off, by the way. The show's taking Monday off. We're giving the team a long weekend, which means that Tuesday morning of next week, Tuesday morning, Kubi will present positive reflections. Coming up tomorrow, of course, we'll present Trash Talk. That's from the team at Local Waste. They proudly present it to wrap up our broadcast week each and every week. Uh, your chance to, to get a little something off your chest. I've been telling you. I mean, unless somebody rolls in and, and, and knocks off this email, we already have our finishing email. We already have our finishing move for tomorrow. It's from Wade. I'm not going to read it yet. I hold it right now in my hand. This 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 trash talk from Wade. I almost want to like read it now and then read it again tomorrow. But I don't think it needs the double whammy. I think that it's going to be the step up. It's, it's going to be the walk off home run that Wade hits tomorrow. Really looking forward to that. There's no BS at Local Waste. As a matter of fact, one of their corporate principles, it's literally up on the wall. It says no BS, and that's why they're sounding the alarm right now. If you're an entrepreneur in Edmonton, you may have got an email from a waste services provider that, uh, well, I mean, it sort of appears like they might be kind of sort of trying to dupe people, to dupe them into contract extensions based on some flimsy logic. I talked to the team at Local Waste about it. They said, you should let real talkers know. I said, oh, I will. So if you've got a suspicious email, you entrepreneurs, about your waste contracts give the team at local waste a call they'll they'll cut through the bs for you and help you sort out a solution that works best for your small business again at localwaste.ca our friends at athabasca university present power ed and if you go to powered.ca right now you're going to see how you can learn how you can better yourself how you can get updated on demand online taking fabulous courses learning new skill sets in a structure that fits your schedule everything from allyship and inclusion to digital wellness what about learning more about ai and machine learning 
What about powering your employees or powering your organization, making sure your skill sets are future proof? You can learn more at powered.ca, proudly presented by Athabasca University. And of course, before we get to some of the comments that you've been making here, I also wanted to remind you that the team at Campers Village, they're brand new as builders here at Real Talk, and we're really excited what they're bringing to the mix because we've got shared values about the value of getting outdoors. They've got more than just camping gear, whether you're looking for great clothing, lifestyle clothing for on and off the trails, travel gear, clothing, luggage, even useful outdoor gear for backcountry exploration, the front country car camping, or even the cabin lake or backyard life at campers-village.com. They've got you covered. Plus, there are two stores in Edmonton, one store in Calgary, and a note that most orders over 49 bucks ship for free across the country. If you're looking to upgrade your gear and get outside, visit our friends at campers-village.com. So we've covered a lot of ground today. We've been talking about health care for indigenous people and indigenous communities. We've been taking a look at El Salvador and we've been taking a look at what's going on with currency. And of course, out of the gates today, we get the Jewish perspective on violence in the Middle East and ultimately what moving forward looks like in the pursuit of a two state solution. If indeed that is the solution, we've appreciated the feedback that you've brought to us, but we, we haven't spent a ton of time talking about the attacks, the sustained attacks on Alberta's premier. I haven't even checked in with our team yet. We haven't really, really got into it, but, but it's a story that we really can't ignore yesterday. Uh, Alberta's premier, uh, I suppose, confirming what TC Energy had been hinting at for a while, which was that the Keystone XL pipeline is indeed done. It's going to cost the people of Alberta $1.3 billion, and it's certainly raising the ire of, I think, conservative supporters that feel like it was a move that maybe didn't best fit Alberta's circumstance and most certainly those that would oppose the government. We're going to continue conversations on that tomorrow. We're going to be keeping an eye on our our inbox today to see what you have to say about it we'll continue to explore those stories when we get into it tomorrow that's exactly going to be the subject matter for our friday roundtable you know our real talk roundtable goes every friday live at 9 a.m mountain 11 o'clock eastern we'll talk about investment in pipelines and then we'll talk about investment in hydrogen Canada and Alberta's energy future, a deep dive with an all-star panel. We look forward to you joining us then. In the meantime, make it a great Thursday. Thanks for making Real Talk part of your day. We'll speak to you soon.